2. Tilanch is acquired, the branch then aimed at is attained by the right hand again, and quitted instantaneously, and so on, in alternate succession. In this manner spaces of 12 and 18 feet are cleared, with the greatest ease and uninterruptedly, for hours together, without the slightest appearance of fatigue being manifested, and it is evident that, if more space could be allowed, distances very greatly exceeding 18 feet would be as easily cleared, so that Duvassil's assertion that he has seen these animals launch themselves from one branch to another, 40 feet asunder, startling as an island may be well credited, sometimes, on seizing a branch in her progress, she will throw herself, by the power of one arm only, completely round it, making a revolution with such rapidity as almost to deceive the eye, and continue her progress with a diminished velocity. It is singular to observe how suddenly this gibbon can stop, when the impetus given by the rapidity and distance of her swinging leaps would seem to require a gradual abatement of her movements. In the very midst of her flight a branch is seized, the body raised, and she is seen, as if by magic, quietly seated on it, grasping it with her feet, as suddenly she again throws herself into action. The following facts will convey some notion of her dexterity and quickness. A live bird was let loose in her apartment, she marked its flight, made a long swing to a distant branch, caught the bird with one hand in her passage, and attained the branch with her other hand, her aim, both at the bird and at the branch, being as successful as if one object only had engaged her attention. It may be added that she instantly bit off the head of the bird, picked its feathers, and then threw it down without attempting to eat it. On another occasion this animal swung herself from a perch, across a passage at least twelve feet wide, against a window which it was thought would be immediately broken, but not so, to the surprise of all. She caught the narrow framework between the panes with her hand, in an instant attained the proper impetus and sprang back again to the cage she had left a feat requiring not only great strength, but the nicest precision. The gibbons appear to be naturally very gentle, but there is very good evidence that they will bite severely when irritated. A female hylobates agilis having so severely lacerated one man with her long canines that he died, while she had injured others so much that, by way of precaution, these formidable teeth had been filed down, but if threatened she would still turn on her keeper. The gibbons eat insects, but appear generally to avoid animal food. A siamang, however, was seen by Mr. Bennett to seize and devour giaridly a live lizard. They commonly drink by dipping their fingers in the liquid and then licking them. It is asserted that they sleep in a sitting posture. Duvassil affirms that he has seen the females carry their young to the waterside and there wash their faces. In spite of resistance and cries, they are gentle and affectionate in captivity full of tricks and pettishness like spoiled children, and yet not devoid of a certain conscience, as an anecdote, told by Mr. Bennett will show, it would appear that his gibbon had a peculiar inclination for disarranging things in the cabin, among these articles a piece of soap would especially attract his notice, and for the removal of this he had been once or twice scolded, one morning, says Mr. Bennett, I was writing, the ape being present in the cabin, when, casting my eyes toward him, I saw the little fellow taking the soap, I watched him without him perceiving that I did so, and he occasionally would cast a furtive glance toward the place where I sat. I pretended to write, he seeing me busily occupied, took the soap, and moved away with it in his paw. When he had walked half the length of the cabin, I spoke quietly, without frightening him. The instant he found I saw him he walked back again and deposited the soap nearly in the same place from whence he had taken it. There was certainly something more than instinct in that action 
he evidently betrayed a consciousness of having done wrong both by his first and last actions and what is reason if that is not an exercise of it. The most elaborate account of the natural history of the orangutan extant is that given in the Verhandeling and Overdenade Wurlich Jeskidini's Dear Niederlandschelvers each Bayesetting in 1839-45, by Dr. Solomon Mueller and Dr. Schlegel, and I shall base what I have to say upon this subject almost entirely on their statements, adding here and there particulars of interest from the writings of Brooke, Wallace, and others. The orangutan would rarely seem to exceed four feet in height but the body is very bulky, measuring two-thirds of the height in circumference. The orangutan is found only in Sumatra and Borneo, and is common in either of these islands in both of which it occurs always in low, flat plains, never in the mountains. It loves the densest and most somber of the forests, which extend from the seashore inland, and thus is found only in the eastern half of Sumatra, where alone such forests occur, though, occasionally, it strays over to the western side. On the other hand it is generally distributed through Borneo, except in the mountains, or where the population is dense, in favorable places the hunter may, by good fortune, see three or four in a day, except in the pairing time, the old males usually live by themselves, the old females and the immature males, on the other hand, are often met with in twos and threes, and the former occasionally have young with them, though the pregnant females usually separate themselves and sometimes remain apart after they have given birth to their offspring. The young orangs seem to remain unusually long under their mother's protection, probably in consequence of their slow growth. While climbing the mother always carries her young against her bosom, the young holding on by the mother's hair. At what time of life the orangutan becomes capable of propagation, and how long the females go with young is unknown, but it is probable that they are not adult until they arrive at 10 or 15 years of age. A female which lived for five years at Batavia had not attained one-third the height of the wild females. It is probable that, after reaching adult years, they go on growing, though slowly, and that they live to forty or fifty years. The diaxtal of old orangs which have not only lost all their teeth, but which find it so troublesome to climb that they maintain themselves on windfalls and juicy herbage. The orang is sluggish, exhibiting none of that marvelous activity characteristic of the gibbons. Hunger alone seems to stir him to exertion, and when it is stilled he relapses into a repose. When the animal sits, it curves its back and bows its head, so as to look straight down on the ground. Sometimes it holds on with its hands by a higher branch, sometimes lets them hang phlegmatically down by its side, and in these positions the orang will remain for hours together, in the same spot, almost without stirring, and only now and then giving utterance to its deep, growling voice. By day he usually climbs from one treetop to another, and only at night descends to the ground, and if then threatened with danger he seeks refuge among the underwood. When not hunted, he remains a long time in the same locality, and sometimes stops for many days on the same tree, a firm place among its branches serving him for a bed. It is rare for the orang to pass the night in the summit of a large tree, probably because it is too windy and cold there for him but as soon as night draws on he descends from the height and seeks out a fit bed in the lower and darker part, or in the leafy top of a small tree, among which he prefers nibon palms, pandani, or one of those parasitic orchids which gave the primeval forests of Borneo so characteristic and striking an appearance, but whenever he determines to sleep, there he prepares himself a sort of nest, little boughs and leaves are drawn together round the selected spot, and bent crosswise over one another, while to make the bed soft, 
great leaves of ferns, of orchids, of pandanus fascicularis, nepafruticans, etc. are laid over them. Those which Mueller saw, many of them being very fresh, were situated at a height of 10 to 25 feet above the ground, and had a circumference, on the average, of 2 or 3 feet. Some were packed many inches thick with pandanus leaves, others were remarkable only for the cracked twigs, which, united in a common center, formed a regular platform. The root hut, says Sir James Brooke, which they are stated to build in the trees, would be more properly called a seat or nest, for it has no roof or cover of any sort. The facility with which they form this nest is curious, and I had an opportunity of seeing a wounded female weave the branches together and seat herself within a minute. According to the Diax the orang rarely leaves his bed before the sun is well above the horizon and has dissipated the mists. He gets up about nine, and goes to bed again about five, but sometimes not till late in the twilight. He lies sometimes on his back, or, by way of change, turns on one side or the other, drawing his limbs up to his body, and resting his head on his hand. When the night is cold, windy, or rainy, he usually covers his body with a heap of pandanus nipa or fir leaves, like those of which his bed is made, and he is especially careful to wrap up his head in them. It is this habit of covering himself up which has probably led to the fable that the orang builds huts in the trees. Although the orang resides mostly amid the boughs of great trees during the daytime, he is very rarely seen squatting on the thick branches of their apes, and particularly the gibbons, do. The orang, on the contrary, confines himself to the slender leafy branches, so that he is seen right at the top of the trees, a mode of life which is closely related to the constitution of his hinder limbs, and especially to that of his seat, for this is provided with no colossites such as are possessed by many of the lower apes, and even by the gibbons, and those bones of the pelvis, which are termed the ischia, and which form the solid framework of the surface on which the body rests in the sitting posture, are not expanded like those of the apes which possess colossities, but are more like those of man and orang climbs so slowly and cautiously as, in this act, to resemble a man more than an ape, taking great care of his feet, so that injury of them seems to affect him far more than it does other apes, and like the gibbons, whose forearms do the greater part of the work as they swing from branch to branch, the orang never makes even the smallest jump, in climbing, he moves alternately one hand and one foot, or, after having laid fast hold with the hands, he draws up both feet together, In passing from one tree to another he always seeks out a place where the twigs of both come close together, or interlace. Even when closely pursued, his circumspection is amazing, he shakes the branches to see if they will bear him, and then bending and overhanging bow down by throwing his weight gradually along it. He makes a bridge from the tree he wishes to quit to the next. On the ground the orang always goes laboriously and shockily on all fours, that starting he will run faster than a man though he may soon be overtaken, the very long arms which, when he runs, are but little bent, raise the body of the orang remarkably, so that he assumes much the posture of a very old man bent down by age, and making his way along by the help of a stick, in walking, the body is usually directed straight forward, and like the other apes, which run more or less obliquely, except the gibbons, who in these, as in so many other respects, depart remarkably from their fellows, the orang cannot put its feet flat on the ground, but is supported upon their outer edges, the heel resting more on the ground, while the curved toes partly rest upon the ground by the upper side of their first joint, the two outermost toes of each foot completely resting on the surface, 
the hands are held in the opposite manner, their inner edges serving as the chief support. The fingers are then bent out in such a manner that their foremost joints, especially those of the two innermost fingers, rest upon the ground by their upper sides, while the point of the free and straight thumb serves as an additional fulcrum. The orang never stands on its hind legs, and all the pictures representing it as so doing are as false as the assertion that it defends itself with sticks and the like. The long arms are of a special use, not only in climbing, but in the gathering of food from boughs to which the animal could not trust his weight. Figures blossoms, and young leaves of various kinds, constitute the chief nutriment of the orang, but strips of bamboo two or three feet long were found in the stomach of a male. They are not known to eat living animals, although, when taken young, the orangutan soon becomes domesticated, and indeed seems to court human society, it is naturally a very wild and shy animal, though apparently sluggish and melancholy. The Dyaks affirm that when the old males are wounded with arrows only they will occasionally leave the trees and rush raging upon their enemies, whose sole safety lies in instant flight, as they are sure to be killed if caught. But, though possessed of immense strength, it is rare for the orang to attempt to defend itself, especially when attacked with firearms. On such occasions he endeavors to hide himself, or to escape along the topmost branches of the trees, breaking off and throwing down the boughs as he goes. When wounded he betakes himself to the highest attainable point of the tree, and emits a singular cry, consisting at first of high notes, which at length deepen into a low roar, not unlike that of a panther. While giving out the high notes the orang thrusts out his lips into a funnel shape, but in uttering the low notes he holds his mouth wide open, and at the same time the great throat bag, or laryngeal sac, becomes distended, according to the dyaks. The only animal the orang measures his strength with is the crocodile, who occasionally seizes him on his visits to the waterside, but they say that the orang is more than a match for his enemy, and beats him to death, or rips up his throat by pulling the jaws asunder. Much of what has been here stated was probably derived by Dr. Mueller from the reports of his dyak hunters, but a large male, four feet high, lived in captivity under his observation for a month, and receives a very bad character. He was a very wild beast, says Mueller, of prodigious strength, and false and wicked to the last degree. If anyone approached he rose up slowly with a low growl, fixed his eyes in the direction in which he meant to make his attack, slowly passed his hand between the bars of his cage, and then, extending his long arm, gave a sudden grip usually at the face. He never tried to bite though orangs will bite one another, his great weapons of offense and defense being his hands. His intelligence was very great, and Mueller remarks that, though the faculties of the orang have been estimated too highly, yet Cuvier, had he seen this specimen, would not have considered its intelligence to be only a little higher than that of a dog. His hearing was very acute, but the sense of vision seemed to be less perfect. The underlip was the great organ of touch, and played a very important part in drinking, being thrust out like a trough so as either to catch the falling rain or to receive the contents of the half-coconut shell full of water with which the orang was supplied, and which, in drinking, he poured into the trough thus formed, in Borneo, the orangutan of the Malays goes by the name of Emias among the Dyaks, who distinguished several kinds as Emias Papan, or Zimo, Emias Gasu, and Emias Rambai, whether these are distinct species, however, or whether they are mere races, and how far any of them are identical with the Sumatran orang, as Mr. Wallace thinks the MIAs happen to be, are problems which are at present undecided, 
and the variability of these great apes is so extensive that the settlement of the question is a matter of great difficulty. Of the form called M.I.A.'s Papin, Mr. Wallace observes, it is known by its large size, and by the lateral expansion of the face into fatty protuberances, or ridges, over the temporal muscles, which have been mistermed colossites, as they are perfectly soft, smooth, and flexible. Five of this form, measured by me, varied only from four feet one inch to four feet two inches in height, from the heel to the crown of the head, the girth of the body from three feet to three feet seventy one two inches, and the extent of the outstretched arms from seven feet two inches to seven feet six inches, the width of the face from ten to one hundred thirty one four inches, the color and length of the hair varied in different individuals, and in different parts of the same individual, some possessed a rudimentary nail on the great toe, others none at all, but they otherwise present no external differences on which to establish even varieties of a species. Yet, when we examine the crania of these individuals, we find remarkable differences of form, proportion, and dimension, no two being exactly alike. The slope of the profile, and the projection of the muzzle, together with the size of the cranium, offer differences as decided as those existing between the most strongly marked forms of the Caucasian and African crania in the human species. The orbits vary in width and height, the cranial ridges either single or double, either much or little developed, and the zygomatic aperture varies considerably in size. This variation in the proportions of the crania enables us satisfactorily to explain the marked difference presented by the single-crested and double-crested skulls, which have been thought to prove the existence of two large species of orang. The external surface of the skull varies considerably in size as do also the zygomatic aperture and the temporal muscle, but they bear no necessary relation to each other, a small muscle often existing with a large cranial surface, and vice versa. Now those skulls which had the largest and strongest jaws, and the widest zygomatic aperture, had the muscles so large that they meet on the crown of the skull, and deposit the bony ridge which separates them, and which is the highest in that which has the smallest cranial surface in those which combine a large surface with comparatively weak jaws, and small zygomatic aperture, the muscles, on each side, do not extend to the crown, a space of from one to two inches remaining between them, and along their margins small ridges are formed, intermediate forms are found, in which the ridges meet only in the hinder part of the skull, the form and size of the ridges are therefore independent of age, being sometimes more strongly developed in the less aged animal. Professor Temming states that the series of skulls in the Leiden Museum shows the same result. Mr. Wallace observed two male adult orangs M.I.A.'s Gasu of the Dyaks, however, so very different from any of these that he concludes them to be specially distinct, they were respectively 3 feet 81 2 inches and 3 feet 91 2 inches high, and possessed no sign of the cheek excrescences, but otherwise resembled the larger kinds. The skull has no crest, but two bony ridges. 1442 inches apart, as in the Simeamorio of Professor Owen. The teeth, however, are immense, equaling or surpassing those of the other species. The females of both these kinds, according to Mr. Wallace, are devoid of excrescences, and resemble the smaller males, but are shorter by 11 to 3 inches, and their canine teeth are comparatively small, subtrincated and dilated at the base, as in the so-called Simeamorio, which island in all probability. The skull of a female of the same species as the smaller males. Both males and females of the smaller species are distinguishable, according to Mr. Wallace, by the comparatively large size of the middle incisors of the upper jaw.
So far as I am aware, no one has attempted to dispute the accuracy of the statements which I have just quoted regarding the habits of the two Asiatic man-like apes, and if true, they must be admitted as evidence that such an ape one estili, may readily move along the ground in the erect, or semi-erect, position, and without direct support from its arms, to daily, that it may possess an extremely loud voice so loud as to be readily heard one or two miles, three daily that it may be capable of great viciousness and violence when irritated, and this is especially true of adult males, for thly, that it may build a nest to sleep in, such being well-established facts respecting the Asiatic anthropoids. Analogy alone might justify us in expecting the African species to offer similar peculiarities, separately or combined, or, at any rate, would destroy the force of any attempted a priori argument against such direct testimony as might be adduced in favor of their existence. And if the organization of any of the African apes could be demonstrated to fit it better than either of its Asiatic allies for the erect position and for efficient attack, there would be still less reason for doubting its occasional adoption of the upright attitude, or of aggressive proceedings. From the time of Tyson and Talpes downward the habits of the young chimpanzee in a state of captivity have been abundantly reported and commented upon, but trustworthy evidence as to the manners and customs of adult anthropoids of this species, in their native woods, was almost wanting up to the time of the publication of the paper by Dr. Savage, to which I have already referred, containing notes of the observations which he made, and of the information which he collected from sources which he considered trustworthy while resident at Cape Palmas, at the northwestern limit of the Bight of Benin, the adult chimpanzees, measured by Dr. Savage, never exceeded, though the males may almost attain, five feet in height, when at rest, the sitting posture is that generally assumed, they are sometimes seen standing and walking, but when thus detected, they immediately take to all fours and flee from the presence of the observer, such is their organization that they cannot stand erect, but lean forward, Hence they are seen, when standing, with the hands clasped over the occiput, or the lumbar region, which would seem necessary to balance or ease of posture. The toes of the adult are strongly flexed and turned inward, and cannot be perfectly straightened. In the attempt the skin gathers into thick folds on the back, showing that the full expansion of the foot, as is necessary in walking, is unnatural. The natural position is on all fours, the body anteriorly resting upon the knuckles. These are greatly enlarged, with the skin protuberant and thickened like the sole of the foot. They are expert climbers, as one would suppose from their organization. In their gambols they swing from limb to limb at a great distance, and leap with astonishing agility. It is not unusual to see the old folks in the language of an observer sitting under a tree regaling themselves with fruit and friendly chat, while their children are leaping around them, and swinging from tree to tree with boisterous merriment, as seen here. They cannot be called gregarious, seldom more than five, or ten at most, being found together, it has been said, on good authority, that they occasionally assemble in large numbers, in gambles, my informant asserts that he saw once not less than fifty so engaged, hooting, screaming, and drumming with sticks upon old logs, which is done in the latter case with equal facility by the four extremities, they do not appear ever to act on the offensive, and, seldom, if ever, Really on the defensive, when about to be captured, they resist by throwing their arms about their opponent, and attempting to draw him into contact with their teeth. With respect to this last point Dr. Savage is very explicit in another place, biting is their principal art of defense. I have seen one man who had been thus severely wounded in the feet. 
the strong development of the canine teeth in the adult would seem to indicate a carnivorous propensity, but in no state save that of domestication do they manifest it. At first they reject flesh, but easily acquire a fondness for it. The canines are early developed, and evidently designed to act the important part of weapons of defense. When in contact with man almost the first effort of the animal is to bite. They avoid the abodes of men, and build their habitations in trees. Their construction is more that of nests than huts, as they have been erroneously termed by some naturalists. They generally build not far above the ground. Branches or twigs are bent, or partly broken, and crossed, and the whole supported by the body of a limb or a crow's nest. Sometimes a nest will be found near the end of a strong leafy branch 20 or 30 feet from the ground. One I have lately seen that could not be less than 40 feet, and more probably it was 50, but this is an unusual height. Their dwelling place is not permanent, but changed in pursuit of food and solitude. According to the force of circumstances, we most often see them in elevated places, but this arises from the fact that the low grounds, being more favorable for the natives' rice farms, are the oftener cleared, and hence are almost always wanting in suitable trees for their nests. It is seldom that more than one or two nests are seen upon the same tree, or in the same neighborhood, five have been found but it was an unusual circumstance. They are very filthy in their habits. It is a tradition with the natives generally here that they were once members of their own tribe, that for their depraved habits they were expelled from all human society, and that, through an obstinate indulgence of their vile propensities, they have degenerated into their present state of organization. They are, however, eaten by them, and when cooked with the oil and pulp of the palm nut considered a highly palatable morsel. They exhibit a remarkable degree of intelligence in their habits, and, on the part of the mother, much affection for their young. The second female described was upon a tree when first discovered, with her mate and two young ones a male and a female. Her first impulse was to descend with great rapidity and make off into the thicket with her mate and female offspring, the young male remaining behind. She soon returned to the rescue. She ascended and took him in her arms, at which moment she was shot the ball passing through the forearm of the young one, on the way to the heart of the mother. In a recent case the mother, when discovered, remained upon the tree with her offspring, watching intently the movements of the hunter. As he took aim, she motioned with her hand, precisely in the manner of a human being, to have him desist and go away. When the wound has not proved instantly fatal, they have been known to stop the flow of blood by pressing with the hand upon the part, and when they did not succeed, to apply leaves and grass, when shot, they give a sudden screech, not unlike that of a human, being in sudden and acute distress, the ordinary voice of the chimpanzee, however, is affirmed to be hoarse, guttural, and not very loud, somewhat like hoo-hoo, the analogy of the chimpanzee to the orang, in its nest-building habit and in the mode of forming its nest, is exceedingly interesting, while, on the other hand, the activity of this ape, and its tendency to bite, are particulars in which it rather resembles the gibbons, in extent of geographical range. Again, the chimpanzees which are found from Sierra Leone to Congo remind one of the gibbons rather than of either of the other man-like apes, and it seems not unlikely that, as is the case with the gibbons, there may be several species spread over the geographical area of the genus. The same excellent observer, from whom I have borrowed the preceding account of the habits of the adult chimpanzee, published an account of the gorilla, which has, in its most essential points, been confirmed by subsequent observers, and to which so very little has really been added, that, in justice to Dr. Savage, 
I give it almost in full, it should be borne in mind that my account is based upon the statements of the aborigines of that region the Gaboon. In this connection it may also be proper for me to remark that, having been a missionary resident for several years, studying, from habitual intercourse, the African mind and character, I felt myself prepared to discriminate and decide upon the probability of their statements. Besides, being familiar with the history and habits of its interesting congener Trogniger, Geoff, I was able to separate their accounts of the two animals, which, having the same locality and a similarity of habit, are confounded in the minds of the mass, especially as but few such as traders to the interior, and huntsmen have ever seen the animal in question, the tribe from which our knowledge of the animal is derived, and whose territory forms its habitat, is the Mpongwe, occupying both banks of the river Gaboon, from its mouth to some fifty or sixty miles upward, if the word Pongo be of African origin, it is probably a corruption of the word Mpongwe, the name of the tribe on the banks of the Gaboon, and hence applied to the region they inhabit, their local name for the chimpanzee is Anchico, as near as it can be anglicized, from which the common term Jaiko probably conies, the Mpongwe appellation for its new congener is Anjina, prolonging the sound of the first vowel, and slightly sounding the second, the habitat of the Anjina is the interior of Lower Guinea, while that of the Anchico is nearer the seaboard, its height is about 5 feet, it is disproportionately broad across the shoulders, thickly covered with coarse black hair, which is said to be similar in its arrangement to that of the Anchico, with age it becomes grey, which fact has given rise to the report that both animals are seen of different colours, head, the prominent features of the head are the great width and elongation of the face, the depth of the molar region, the branches of the lower jaw being very deep and extending far backward, and the comparative smallness of the cranial portion, the eyes are very large, and said to be like those of the Anchico, a bright hazel, nose broad and flat, slightly elevated toward the root, the muzzle broad, and prominent lips and chin, with scattered gray hairs, the under lip highly mobile, and capable of great elongation when the animal is enraged, then hanging over the chin, skin of the face and ears naked and of a dark brown, approaching to black, the most remarkable feature of the head is a high rent, 